we're in a period of transition. We're beginning to understand that it will not be possible to bring everything back to the old model because there are too many people who are out of it, who fall through the cracks of whatever institutions we already have. Escoquilpi uh, was defining work as work is solving other people's problems. So that's a very wide definition of work, which includes both, obviously, um, reproductive and, and productive work. I think we are at this stage that we need to reevaluate what value we give to different activities in society. This is Simone Cicero, the host of the Bandless Conversations podcast, an ongoing exploration on the future of platforms and ecosystems. These conversations help us make sense of what's coming next with platform business models, the dynamics of marketplaces, business ecosystems, and much more. Join me, my regular co-host Sina Heikila, and other guests as we explore new perspectives about how we organize a scale in a rapidly changing world. Hi everyone, Stina here, co-host of the Boundaryless Conversation podcast. Today we have a fabulous duo of future work experts with us, Albert Canigaral and Laticia Vito. We chat about some of the key evolutions in this space and how platforms contribute to crystallize trends in the continued unbundling of jobs. Albert Canigaral is WeShare Connector for Spain and Latin America. In 2011, he founded the blog Consumo Colaborativo, becoming a reference in the platform economy in the Spanish-speaking world. He recently published a book, El Trabajo Ya No Es Lo Que Era, excuse me, Spanish speakers for this pronunciation, Work is Not What It Used To Be, a book about the future of work and workers. Albert works as an explorer, consultant, and disseminator in the field of platform economics. He is currently mainly focused on the future of work, the impact of digital platforms in cities, and regulatory innovations. Leticia Vito is a teacher-turned-entrepreneur and is, like Albert, a key reference, both writer and speaker, about the future of work and consumption. She has her own newsletter about the future of work with a feminist perspective, Leticia at Work, and is editor-in-chief of the HR media Welcome to the Jungle. And she leads a media called Nouveau Départ with her partner and husband, Nicolas Collin, who we previously had on the podcast. Leticia is working with clients on how organizations, management, workspace, and social protection are impacted by the unbundling of jobs and the empowerment of freelancers. Check out the show notes for more details about our guests, who are not only experts in the future of work, but who truly embrace this diversity and exploratory approach to their own careers. In our conversation, we cover a lot of ground, with quite some focus on the apparent innovation dilemma that results from the gap on how the concept of work is evolving and the systems in place to protect a new age of independent workers with a fragmented career. We explore how worker tech and different scales of collective arrangements can help platform workers gain agency and rebundle traditional worker benefits. While governments seem to be helplessly stuck in the old paradigm, digital transformation is leading to new modes of organizing scales that depart from the industrial efficiency-based model, with workers starting to take matters in their own hands to organize collectively. Enjoy this episode with Leticia Vito and Albert Canigiral. Hello, everyone. So we are back uh, recording uh, our uh, podcast conversations for the Boundaryless Conversations podcast. I'm here, uh, Simone, uh, today with you, with my usual co-host, Stina Heckila. Hello, hello. And today uh, with us, we have Leticia Vito. Hi, everyone. And uh, Albert Canigiral. Hello. Hello, both. Uh, thanks very much for your time today. We are really looking forward uh, to have this uh, conversation with you. Uh, as our listeners uh, know, we we are exploring since uh, more or less since February last year in this podcast, the future or I would say the present, uh, unfolding present of organizing at scale in a, in a so much uh, changing world. And uh, of course, a part of these uh, changes that we are seeing are uh, very much related to the so-called uh, future of work. Uh, so everybody's talking about that. And uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, this was a topic that we had to explore. And we started to some extent to explore this topic uh, recently and uh, also last year with uh, Stowe Boyd or Sanjit Chudari. But I thought that uh, your work was really important for our listeners to catch up with uh, in terms of how work is changing, what are the tendencies and trends that we can uh, imagine for the future. So maybe uh, as a start, I would like to ask you both to uh, explore a bit uh, more uh, uh, the usual suspects. And you know? also how 
platforms and uh, marketplaces, and especially lately there has been a lot of talks uh, talking about uh, so-called uh, deep work platforms and vertical platforms that address specific markets or specific uh, aspects of, of work, how these platforms are essentially impacting the worker. And uh, there's been a lot of talking about, uh, for example, the creator's economy, the passion economy, how these platforms and marketplaces are empowering individuals to become these kind of superstars you know, in, their, uh, uh, in their context of work. And um, and uh, so, so so what is your feeling in terms of the major trends and what are you seeing emerging in terms of how platforms are reshaping uh, uh, work? Maybe we can start with uh, Alberto, no? since we had this uh, uh, little exchange in preparation of the of the conversation today. Yeah, hello, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm a listener of the podcast, so it's very it's very good also to be part of it. Uh, I would say from a macro perspective, what we see is the, f- the fragmentation of the work and the career of, of workers. I think that beyond going deep in any specific uh, sector or, or, or type of platform, I think that uh, what it used to be a continuum, we used to work in a single place for many years, uh, no, have, a, have a single identity. What we are doing now uh, is we are having consecutive jobs no most of the people in the podcast uh, here we've had uh, worked in different in different uh, different spaces different different companies and now with the platforms it's very easy to have several jobs at the same time or several income sources and as you were saying uh, there is a multiplicity of these of these platforms and one of the that's gaining more steam is the is the passion economy and the expert economy probably with, uh, with business like the one you are doing with the podcast or what Leticia is doing also. She has personal experience. I think you can, you can explain from your personal experience. But I would say that it's important to understand from a societal perspective is that we are moving from something that used to be very predictable, very continuous uh, relationship uh, understood as work to something that is very fragmented and you will need to have a lot of relationships with a lot of different people. And this is where platforms help to organize. Thank you, Albert, for this uh, summary. I feel like I have nothing to add. (laughs) Um, uh, I I, I believe that platforms and marketplaces, in a way, they crystallize our conversations about the future of work and the unbundling of work beyond the actual size of um, revenues they generate for people. Uh, What I mean is that um, we speak a lot about Uber, about Deliveroo, or about Etsy and Molt and all sorts of platforms, but the business reality is that it's still fairly small in terms of the the revenues they generate for people. Uh, For example, craftspeople who use Etsy to sell handmade handbags or whatever it is that they make uh, generate a ridiculous sum of money. Um, and yet, and yet, why do we speak about platforms so much? And why are we so obsessed with them? Because they crystallize all of the transformations that, uh, that we go through. The first, obviously, is the digital transformation that has repercussions on the way we interact with other people, on the way we find work whether it's digital work or not. Um, but they also crystallize our conversations about the changing nature of, our, of all of our institutions, namely social protection. It used to be that with each job we had, we had a you know, health insurance that came with it, salaried job came with a number of protections like a retirement scheme. So you had a pension when you left your work. It came with all sorts of protections when you lost it, you had unemployment um, benefits usually. And all of these things are being unbundled and and therefore platforms also crystallize our conversations about the new precariousness of work, how you know we're basically left on our own even though we're connected with everybody else on those platforms so um, you mentioned a number of subjects the fragmentation of work the fact that there's no you know one relationship between 
a company and a worker, um, but also the digital transition and all that it means and the dynamics on the market, of whether or not there is a winner-take-all dynamic on some sectors. So all of these themes basically are themes that dominate uh, the current period and, and you know, that we're going through a number of transitions and, and perhaps that's why we talk about platforms so much beyond their actual size and relevance. Right. And it sounds like another very important uh, maybe aspect that we can clarify at, at the start of this conversation is also this uh, polarization no? in, the, in, the, in the market. So we talk about, uh, for example, when we talk about the creators economy and the passion economy and these superstars, uh, producers that uh, are starting to create direct relationships, for example, you know, there's a lot of talking about of Substack these days, you know, these writers that uh, created their own audience and they own these relationships in a D2C uh, way, you know, so basically um, this more empowering side of the market. And on the other side, the uh, gig workers and uh all these, uh, you know, more utility-related uh, uh, work uh, that uh, has been, uh, as well, of course, organized through platforms. So I'm curious to see what are your feelings in terms of, uh, for example, uh, the different impacts that uh, these trends are having on these two types of workers and also in relationship with uh, the social security or all the elements that revolve around uh, the worker himself or herself. You know? so, so how these impacts are shaping up for these two sides of the market, if you also see these two sides? I agree there is a, a polarization. It, it, the funny thing for me is that a lot of these things that we now realize, there is polarization in the job market. There always have been polarization in the job market. It's interesting that because of we have we have the conversation around the impact of platforms, then we start to see a lot or to talk about a lot of these things that were already there for me it's super interesting that because uh, with the excuse of the platforms we can address societal issues that used to be there uh, and we can see and we can measure now them with the, with the platforms on that that's that's a first uh, point then um, i wrote a report on 2019 about a topic which is a little bit obscure it's called worker tech um, it's coming from the from the united kingdom and it's how platforms are developing solutions for rebundling these um, the needs uh, and, uh, for the platform workers. Them of insurance, training, uh, um, pres- uh, being able to be present in several platforms at the same time, training, uh, finding colleagues. Uh, and there is a, this trend of something called worker tech. So it's technology for the workers. And when you start mapping how worker tech is playing for the geek workers, more like delivery uh, drivers or people who are walking dogs around and so on. And then you do you can do a type of map. It's very personalized per this type of work. So you'll see it's not the same for a Uber driver than for a delivery driver, a driver or for someone walking dogs. So it's it's very um made ad hoc to this person and to his or her activity. And the same happens then when in, in the expert economy, on the passion economy or the freelancing economy. Uh, so it's interesting to see this kind of massive personalization that you can do with the platforms. We, we tend to have this idea of social security and services at massive scale, the same for everybody. And these platforms are enabling this micro servicing for different needs that's for me an interesting trend on that on that space yeah what's interesting with work at tech exactly as you describe it is this um, is that uh, even for low-paid jobs um, there are opportunities for empowerment um, for example finding a better work-life balance because if you can choose your shifts your slots you have more mastery over your time and that means a lot for parents for example someone who has to work very early in the morning might find it extremely hard to take their children to school 
But when you are empowered to uh, choose your shifts or exchange your shifts with your with a colleague, which is what some of the worker tech solutions are all about, uh, for example, people who work in um, restaurants or you know um, Starbucks or whatever, they can exchange shifts with someone else depending on the constraints of their own uh, of their own lives. Um, so the idea that there is you know empowerment for the privileged few and um, on just precariousness for the poor is a bit too is a bit is a bit of a caricature. Um, it, it's it's it, in fact I think in spite of the polarization which is very real there is a form of continuum, and what Albert described as worker tech is part of a number of, of a new ecosystem that that offers some form of empowerment to all kinds of workers, and the. So that's the positive. That's basically the positive that concerns everyone, uh, potentially. The negative is that because this increased individualization, uh, which, which of course, comes with lots of advantages, it it focuses just on the individual and it leaves aside um, or it leaves largely aside subjects that are more collective subjects, uh, in particular, collective negotiation of revenues. Uh, And I think that's the next frontier. Uh, There are a number of, uh, not platforms necessarily, but new unions or new movements that are all about bringing the collective back into these increasingly individualized uh, conversations. So how do we negotiate collectively? Do we have something in common, even though we will not choose the same shifts, even though we don't have the same constraints or the same desires? Is there something we can do together to negotiate together because together we'll be stronger and to obtain a bigger share of the pie, whatever the pie is, be paid more, for example? Mm-hmm. And is there really still a space for collectively organizing in this uh, very deep uh, unbundling trend? So what I'm what I'm what I'm exploring here is uh, so so what we are seeing is the individuals are of course uh, ever more empowered, you know, as you said, and in general uh, the efficiency trends that we are seeing are pushing towards uh, an evolution from uh, I would say. Uh, integrated organizations in, more into networked organizations where you have nodes that interact, you know, and and thanks to these uh, extremely pervasive technologies. So the question is, is there still a space for organizing collectively? Uh, I would say we can say unionizing, but we can also say uh, creating teams and, and new types of new patterns of organizations. So what is this space for organizing collectively in a trend that pushes towards increasingly unbund- increasing unbundling and increasingly towards networks uh, instead? That is really the question of the century, what's left of the century. That's probably the question for the future of work, as far as I'm concerned, whether there is a space for collective organizing in an increasingly individualized world where every work uh, or job is, an unbun- is unbundled. Um, but I think uh, what we're seeing in some spaces, uh, for example, in domestic services, there's this new union in the, in, the U- in the U.S. that focuses on domestic workers who basically were the invisible workers in the, of the past century and, and are becoming more and more visible. Uh, and the pandemic has made them even more visible as everyone's stuck at home or every uh, remote workers stuck at home and 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 you know suddenly it's the domestic sphere is kind of the next frontier that everyone's looking at so domestic workers um, are people who are basically cleaning women it's a lot of women so I use the word women <laughs> um, also among uh, platform workers who um, organize deliveries, there's this independent workers of Great Britain Union that has, with new methods, made the plight of these workers suddenly uh, a global or at least a national conversation in the UK. So there are, those conversations are being held at the moment. I, I, I don't think there is a concrete result of a new collective institution that can prove that, the, that you know, there, there is a space for collective organization. But at least those conversations are all on the table right now. And um, 
uh, well, maybe one last example. In, in France, there is a, a conversation about the social protection of, um, of self-employed workers. And there's a new union, for lack of another word, it's not exactly a union, called Indépendant.co, that is all about uh, negotiating this time with the government to create an, you know, unemployment benefits for those who are struck by the current crisis and the next one and the one after. Uh, and basically, it's about uh, it's a national conversation about how we can rethink our institutions of social protection and what it means to be, what security, what economic security means in the 21st century. Yeah, for, for me, this uh, emergence of different uh, groups of, uh, of independent workers or autonomous workers is at, at what level these organizations are happening. Because there is a risk in the same way that we have a fragmentation of, of work, there is, there is an, a risk of fragmentation of this collective negotiation and if you are too small, you will not have enough power to uh, to have a negotiation power in the in the discussion. That was something that was pointed by a traditional trade union member uh, to me in a conversation. No, we were saying the domestic workers. Uh, it's, a, it's a very specific niche. It's large, it's super large. Or, for example, in Spain we have the Kellys, which are the the people who are cleaning the hotel rooms uh, which are not employed anymore they are external workers and they have unionized in in the kellys as uh, one group and then you have the the, the riders who are with libero and with globo and uber eats it's uh, it's so niche that is difficult to have this systemic approach it's very specific so there is a there is a question there what is the the right size to to organize to to different needs that 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 we might have and I think it's several. The answer is not just one. It's, it's at several levels. We need to we need to organize. There is something that is very niche specific for the people who are uh, working in delivery platforms, and there will be other conversations like the one Leticia was saying about the social protection as a whole for independence.co in France. Uh, so it's important to have uh, all these all these levels, and it's also interesting to see. For example, I know the ones in Spain. Uh, inside the, the riders, the people who are doing delivery services, there are three or four or even five different uh, groups of workers because they have different perspectives. Uh, there is also a fragmentation inside. So in the same way that traditional trade unions tend to be quite uh, unified, um, we see the emergence of all these groups. Some of them want to be employed by the platform. Some of them are fighting against the platform and against the government not to be employed because they prefer to be freelancers. Some of them are led by mostly people who are national from Spain. Others are led by immigrants. So uh, people who are more dependent or less dependent on the platform, they do not, it's not a, a group of people who are all the same. They, have, they, they are different people with different needs. And that in this in that respect, there is an emergence of different groups. That, that's one thing. And on the original question from Simone of, of the organization, I would say that, yes, we need in this fragmentation. It's not just there is a space for for collectivization. There is a must for collectivization and the union efforts are just one of the aspects. People also join forces to learn together, to share tools, to share a space, to share a brand uh, like we do in WeShare, to access the market in an organized way, so we share the reputation. So something I've, I've learned um, during this uh, research is that we are still too much focused on the individual and individualistic narrative. And for me, it's pretty clear that the future of work will be uh, the main character or the main uh, entity will be this small collective of four, five, 10, 15 people. Mm, yeah, that's that's very interesting. Also, um, it's true that the narrative is purely an individualistic narrative, and that's a bit of a problem because it creates blind spots. Um, and one blind spot is that we fail to see the importance of the household as an economic entity. And that's ma been made very visible by the pandemic in multiple ways. When households are composed of one individual, that's a lot of loneliness and sadness and pain for people who are in lockdown and deprived of a human, of human, any form of human touch. Uh, but for households composed of, uh, you know, traditional nuclear families of opposite with an opposite sex couple and, you know, a mother, father and children, what's been made visible by this pandemic is how much 
there is no individual when it, when a, when there is a household as an economic entity because mothers uh, who had to stop working because they had their children at home um, and had no other choice but to you know take on all the domestic chores and that was so massive in the U.S. It's a million women who left work throughout 2020 because of these domestic chores that they uh, couldn't externalize anymore. Uh, and so nuclear families as the this you know sort of a, as the entity that creates all these inequalities uh, in particular gender inequalities that's something that must be seen that should be seen because there is no individual uh, when, when there is a household. And maybe but, because Albert mentioned uh, the, the subject of, of other form of communities and other form, forms of households also, um, that in fact we should bear in mind that this traditional nuclear household has become now a minority of all households. And, uh, and, and yet it still shapes our vision of what a household should be and 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 we think it's the norm you know this father mother children that that's the norm it's no longer the case it's actually less than 50% of all households that are composed of such groups of individuals um and so there are new forms of of course, same-sex couples, of course, um, single people, but also groups of friends living together, uh, co-living entities, and lots of different you know, solutions and, and sometimes intergenerational communities living and working together. And they provide solutions that are lacking. And, you know, this, this lack, this terrible lack that we've seen during the pandemic can um, you know be solved by some of these new forms of um, of living together and working together? I'd like to maybe attach to that discussion about sort of the traditional household and nuclear family and so on, and also talk about another more traditional space, which is our institutions and government. So it would be interesting to hear what you guys think about what is happening to the relationship maybe between uh, both people. So. Who, who might be on the one hand sort of craving more freedom uh, and on the other needing some sort of protection and collective action. How are we redefining the relationship between citizens and the state in this space and the role of institutions in, in regulating platforms, I mean, but also more broadly connected to the future work that we have been discussing? I would say there is a, mostly a disconnect at this, at, at this stage because you see a lot of emerging uh, groups, emerging activities, uh, emerging alternatives, people trying to do what they can with the technology that they have at hand, solving their own needs. And at least in Spain, and this is the government I, I know I know best at the moment, uh, the, the, it's more like, a, I would say, a retropia, no? like going back to the old forms of work, uh, because there is this, this old form of work has a traditional good protection so we want this good protection for everybody but we don't know how to deliver in any other form we only can think in a traditional contract instead of thinking on worker tech or other solutions to deliver and the institution or the entity of negotiations is still the individual not these other levels that could be a household or could be a group of friends or could be like a guilt approach so from my own experience in spain most of the things are still out of the red radar of the government and you need to it's, it's also understandable because there is so much investment in the in the institutional structures in the narratives in the law in a given direction that actually turning into another direction or including alternatives it's very hard it it, it, it creates a lot of a lot of frictions it's the same now going back to the to the families uh, concept when we start having same same sex couples, uh, it, it was a disruption for a lot of institutions, uh, and it took a while to accommodate in terms of uh, narrative, in terms of rights and duties, uh, all these alternatives. So we are in uh, in this interim also. Yeah, I think there are different 
cultural answers to these questions. You mentioned Spain. What's true about Spain is probably largely true about France as well, even though, I mean, there are some differences, obviously, but it's largely it's largely the same. There's this sort of innovation dilemma um, that there's no incentive for anyone to encourage alternative forms when the, the old traditional model of the salaried work and all its protections fits um, fit society so well that let's take everything back to that old mold and what we're familiar with. So it's, it's largely the same. And that's why traditional unions find it, traditional labor unions find it so hard to address the subject of the self-employed because it doesn't fit the model. Basically, they believe it's it's a situation that's a tr- tr- that must be a transition, and ultimately, um, these self-employed workers have to go back to traditional salaried work. Otherwise, they don't know what to do with them. Um, and and it's um, it's a, tr- a traditional and innovation dilemma. Uh, but in other in other countries like the UK, it's 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 a, it's a different cultural situation altogether. It's like uh, they take it for granted that precariousness uh, for low-paid workers is the new norm, and the objective is basically to have as many people in work as possible. And so, you know, they had these zero-hour contracts and all kinds of contracts, whether salaried or not, that are um, that basically the the main objective is to have everyone working and who cares if that work provides extremely low pay so yeah it's it's there's no one answer to that question and and as albert said i think we're in a period of transition we're beginning to understand that it will not be possible to bring everything back to the old model uh, because there are too many people uh, who are out of it, who are, who fall through the cracks of whatever institutions we already have. Um, again, that's what's made visible by this uh, by this new movement called Independent.co in, in France, that there is, in fact, a large group of self-employed people who choose to be self-employed. And, and for the first time, for the first time in, 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 in many, many years, um, that's been acknowledged by the government, by the French government. Uh, same happened in the UK. It was acknowledged that there is a sufficient, sufficiently large number of people to question the old model. And for me, it's interesting also to observe, as, as Leticia mentioned, the culture, countries which are not uh, on our usual radar, radar like uh, Malaysia or even India, or Kenya, or some countries in, in Latin America, because they do they, they do not have the traditional institutions that we give for granted in our territories. So they, they actually see an opportunity with all these uh, platform work. And it's very interesting to see how both governments and employers are, are, are taking uh, the, the, the transition from uh, analog war, anal, analog mediated, uh, analog marketplaces to digital marketplaces and all the additional consequences. And I would say, for example, I, I like a lot what the Malaysian government is doing, giving new protections, training people to work on platforms, using the digital mechanisms to, to, to guarantee the access to certain uh, social protections. And the same, there, there is a very interesting report uh, about the impacts of gig economy in West Africa by MasterCard, if you want to, to Google it. They talk about the gig economy as both the informal economy, they call it the analog gig economy because it's pre-existing and it's how most of their workforce in uh, in countries in West Africa earn their living. And they see the transition to digital uh, gig economy as a great opportunity to formalization and to be uh, to have the opportunity to provide uh, some of these uh, social security services, for example. So it, it all depends on the size, on the original size of the informal economy. So in some countries like India, the informal economy provides most of the jobs, whereas in countries like Germany, uh, I mean, inform, the informal economy has a much smaller size. And so the opportunity of uh, making the informal economy somewhat more formal through digital is not the same depending on where you start. Right. I mean, this is extremely interesting. Um, so my question here would be to explore with you 
as we witness no, in this conversation we are having, uh, somehow the existing public institutions are losing relevance in this debate, you know, because uh, uh, the trend of unbundling uh, has been pushing so hard that to some extent uh, the traditional work agreements or social compacts that we were used to work with uh, in the industrial age uh, and in the public institutions age are no more so functional. No? So, so I, I think what we are seeing is... Uh, um, institutions that are failing to understand what is happening to work and uh, uh, as a result uh, to, to some extent we see uh, worker rights being uh, jeopardized and uh, in, I would say even the discussion around worker rights is not doesn't sound so, so top of the news uh, anymore no? so, so essentially it's like we are g- giving it for granted that uh, the new patterns of work uh, uh, do not include the institutional agreements that we used to have in the uh, you know in the 20th century essentially so part of this transition i think it's a transition between uh, it's it's because the the old uh, i would say the old space where work was a two-sided contract between a worker and a company for example or even between an institution and a citizen is being so much uh, pulverized and um, unbundled that, uh, as I said, we fail to fit the old uh, uh, categories, the old ideas into this uh, commoditization of work, I would say. So on the other side, what we see is that uh, this, uh, this emerging, emerging space where thanks to technologies such as you know, the internet, but even uh, increasingly things such as the blockchain or things like that, future of work seems like uh, more a uh, collective contract. So to some extent, we see, for example, platforms where you can uh, connect investors and uh, designers and workers into increasingly some new possibilities. So so, so my question here for you is, uh, how do you see this space of uh, creating, creating new institutions based on collective agreements, no more just uh, uh, two-sided contracts and uh, is this a space where we can see, to some extent, uh, a reinvention of the public uh, into a multiplicity of public uh, of publics, not just the very old monolithic idea of the public, but maybe uh, a public that works at the level of the household, of the community, the neighborhood, the local community, and so on? What do you think about that? That's an interesting question. Among these institutions that you mentioned, there there are norms regarding safety. You know, we, throughout the 20th century, we created a series of norms and rules and laws to protect workers, to make them safe. And some were dependent on, on specific branches, specific industries had their own rules. And Let's say, for example, whether or not you're exposed to chemical products, uh, there's a a certain limit to to that exposure and you need to have certain equipment to protect the worker if if you're an employer to protect them against the the bad effects of of certain chemicals and et cetera, et cetera. But um, that model of those protections were basically modeled after the factory floor and the male worker in that factory floor. So, for example, with this example of chemical products, you know, we had all the norms and all these institutions for the uh, exposure to chemical products on the factory floor by male workers. And so they had all their equipment, you know, uh, special masks, um, you know, special clothing to protect them, etc. And no protection was imagined for the domestic worker, mostly women, working, using chemical products at home, or for the worker, you know, working in a nail salon exposed to other chemicals, um, but were, which were not measured, not controlled. There, was no, there were no rules regarding uh, the safety of that work and the, the, the gear, the protective gear you're supposed to, to, to wear. And the, today, the opportunity is to not just rethink safety in the digital age, but rethink safety for all those workers who were not included in those institutions in the first place, who were already there in the already there in the 20th century. Again, domestic workers, service workers in nail salons and whatever, all those mostly women, I mean, it's not just a gender thing, but it's mostly women versus men in, 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 on average. And so I think that yeah, this, 
among this, uh, among the opportunities of reinvention is this opportunity to rethink what safety means. Uh, what does working safely mean today? And in the 20th century, workers who were fragmented were not included in those definitions. Today, now that everyone is fragmented, everyone is, uh, uh, you know, more or less on their own, uh, we can ask the right questions. What, is it, what does safety mean? What well, exposure to chemicals, what does it mean? What kind of protection should we all have when we work in certain environments with certain risks? If I can jump in before leaving the floor to, to Albert, I think I want to un- highlight this point that you raised, you know, because it seems like due to the deteriorating context, economic context, it's like we are increasingly you know, willing to accept agreements of work that uh, do not uh, uh, provide these uh, uh, kind of uh, worker protection system that uh, we were used in an economy of the 20th century, in an economy that was growing, that were, was not fa- facing uh, you know, these existential threats that we are living or these uh, profound disruptions. But it looks like now, due to the profound disruptions we are living, we are increasingly willing to accept that the traditional context of work is providing opportunities that are more marginalized and, and, and are predicated on, on, on uh, um, as you said, you know, uh, predicated on uh, precariousness. So, so the, the question that maybe I can raise for Albert as well uh, because you also had uh, an experience of creating collectives. You know? so, so the question is, is this new collective space, uh, spaces that we are trying to build uh, as uh, individuals, uh, being them uh, uni- digital unions on one hand, or being them uh, new forms of organizations, I'm thinking about the, I don't know, the uh, livelihood pods or... Uh, the uh, small organizations that we build as as entrepreneurs to co-enterprise together into new spaces, are those spaces, these collective spaces, the real unique spaces where this new safe space, safe, uh, uh, I would say, networks, safety networks can be built uh, in in the lack of uh, uh, alternatives that are coming from more traditional working agreements. Yeah, and coming back to the original question or linking both, uh, I would say that you, you 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 nail it very well on asking if we have multiple publics, or I would say we might have agreements at several levels. So some agreement or some level of security should be universal, acknowledging this fragmentation. For example, for uh, assuming that everybody will have a fragmented uh, work life. Uh, instead of having an unemployment insurance, we should have an, an income insurance. No, let's let's start because we need income stability. We've seen during the pandemic how governments, in an emergency move, they try to uh, have this helicopter money for the people who lost uh, all the all their income or part of their income due to the lockdown situation. So we should acknowledge that everybody, and maybe in the future that will go into a universal basic income, I don't know, but as, as a universal principle for citizens of this and that and the other country, we might expect to have this level of protection in the same way that we have universal access to um, to health services in, in, in Europe, in European countries, most of them. So there is something that needs to be provided at this universal level, and that needs to be revisited because it was built uh, with certain assumptions, and now these assumptions are seem not to be longer true or not for everybody. So it's important to do this revisit and redesign parts of it if necessary. For example, the pension system that used to 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 also to be funded um, with the contributions of the long-term workers. It was very stable contribution. Now with this fragmented workforce, the contributions will not be an, uh, um, stable anymore. So we need to think more uh, on that space so that that's one that's one level if we go one level down we go to uh, maybe a sectorial so what happens when all the people working in the in the shops let's say like uh, facing the public uh, in a proximity proximity services and what common risk do they have all the people working in shops for example what kind of collective among all the shop workers uh, we could have and what level of protection, training, 
simplify mobility, uh, I don't know, uh, shift exchange, as Leticia said before. So what level of security and services we can have? This is at, at sectorial level, let's say, at, at activity level. And then more what you were saying now, Simone, at uh, this smaller units level, which could be like uh, the size of a football team, if you want, eh? 10, 11, 15, 20 people, four people. Uh, these are my, my colleague mates. Maybe I'll be working with them or along them. This is my working family, you know, going or working household, going back to what Leticia mentioned before. What level of protection or what services can we have on that space? This is probably closer to a, to a guild uh, in the medieval ages or would, would be something. So, yeah, I think it's important to explore at different levels what levels what level of protection we can get, what is more efficient at what level. It sounds like, in a way, when you transfer to a new model, uh, also if we take into account the, the current very turbulent environment, which is, I mean, we've lived in 2020 very strongly with the pandemic, but it's already before we have threats that, from climate emergency and so on. So do you see that this this shift can provide us with a more adaptive and a more flexible uh, reconfiguration of society in a way um, that could respond to shocks in a new new way? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. You you mentioned climate change, but um, oh, another disaster was made visible this year during the pandemic, and that's the disaster of um, of uh, of all elderly care homes um, throughout the the Western world. More than half of all deaths uh, occurred in elderly care homes, and these institutions were based on the assumption, as uh, Albert said, uh, that people of the same age should be put together and that care, like any other service, was best provided in a sort of top-down way with economies of scale uh, in, in the model of scientific management and, and mass, the mass economy, right? So you create economies of scale by putting everyone together and having a couple of nurses look after them. And the bigger the institution, the more economies of scale you have. And these have proved an absolute disaster. I mean, it's not just the deaths, uh, millions of deaths throughout the Western world. It's also stories of neglect and horror that really, really make you uh, make you cry. Uh, it's as bad for the workers concerned, the nurses who were not protected, who um, you know faced unprecedented risks uh, with no protection whatsoever. So the, today we have this opportunity with the, with the digital transition that we're going through to revisit, some of these institutions and the way we deliver care is one of them. It's all the more relevant in a context where basically in a lot of Western countries, one, you know, one fifth of the population is going to be uh, over 80 pretty soon. Uh, it's probably um, already the ratio in Japan. Um, median age in, in most uh, European countries is above 45. Um, more than half the population is, is older than 48 in Italy, um, more than 48 in Germany. Um, so pretty soon what we're seeing is that this is a central question in the future of, of work. And, and yeah, the opportunity with digital is to go away from mass economy versions of mass economy solutions and have something that's much more flexible and much more attuned to adapting to circumstances and, and providing solutions that are that are better suited to the needs of the people. So at this point, my, my question would be um, if this uh, possibly this reintegration of care and reproductive work into how we uh, actually account for value creation in society is uh, uh, going to need institutional uh, intervention. So do we still need, for example, policy making to push us uh, towards uh, an idea of uh, uh, adding value in society uh, that goes beyond just the traditional work agreements of the industrial age, let's say, or you see emerging, for example, new ways that where we can organize in collectives or 
creating, for example, new financial agreements or new agreements of how we manage our organizations to make it possible for us to create, uh, 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 you know, these new ways of uh, managing our needs and, and potential to contribute uh, in a way that is more holistic, you know, and, and uh, um, gives us, uh, uh, you know, a way to create value, not just by producing or consuming something, but also by, you know, providing our care services or uh, nurturing uh, services that are complementary to the traditional uh, uh, service economy uh, or, or, you know, work economies that we are uh, used to in the, tw- in the 21st uh, century. What do, you, what do you think? I love that there are so many beautiful answers in your questions. <laughs> it's interesting. You mentioned, I mean, I, I wrote down the word reintegration, which I think is really key. So you, um, in your question, I think what's central is the idea of reproductive work being sep- being traditionally separated from productive work in the industrial paradigm. So there's this idea, okay, there's a factory now and there's productive work in it and at home is reproductive and one is paid and the other one is unpaid. And what happened since then is that a big chunk of this reproductive work became paid again, uh, or, or, or entered the, pay, the, the, the economy uh, and GDP. Uh, but there was still a sort of a, a conflict between paid and unpaid reproductive work. And when I say conflicts, basically there's a competition. Uh, whether you iron your shirt yourself, that's not part of the GDP. If you have it ironed by someone else, then it's an economic activity and it's part of the GDP. And traditionally, governments and institutions were more focused on what's paid than what's unpaid, because what's paid has value and what's unpaid has no value. And when it comes to elderly care, again, I, I could go back to that example because it's so telling and it's going so ma- it's going to be more and more massive. Uh, there is both paid and unpaid uh, reproductive work going on. And what's interesting or what's important is that we need to have a more holistic approach and platforms can help coordinate paid and unpaid, create this fluidity between the two so that voluntary work, for example, the voluntary work of young 70-year-olds looking after old 90-year-olds can be made easier, can be supported, supported through, um, you know, uh, encouraging different forms of housing where people where people from different generations can live together, um, through tax systems that create incentives, um, through yes new um, new uh, platforms to help the voluntary worker work together with a paid worker uh, when it comes to looking after someone who's at the end of their lives and, and needs a lot of help. So it's a number of things that can that can be used to have this more holistic approach so that reproductive work can reintegrate both paid and unpaid contributions. Here I would also add the, the semantic aspect, no, because we are we are discussing ideas and concepts. And here, let me recover the definition of work that uh, Esco Kilpi, uh, a common friend with, with Simone, he was, he, was, he was defining work as work is solving other people's problems. So that's a very wide definition of work, which uh, includes both, obviously, um, reproductive and, and productive, productive work. And I think it's important that, um, or I try when uh, I talk about the future of work, to have this definition uh, in the, in the you know, in, in, in the back burner, because it helps to have this this, this broader picture, uh, and it's important that yeah, it's not only what we are being paid for, but also what is important, as you Simone mentioned, for for the communities, for the society, at at different levels. And we need to, to especially, and, and I'm adding here not so much platform, but automation, robot, robotization, these kind of elements that will be able to automate part of the tasks uh, of, of, of work that will probably leave a little bit less space for human work, at least in some, in some activities that uh, we know nowadays. Others will emerge for sure, uh, but probably more creative, more closer to the cultural, closer to the artisan. And... And we and we know that all these spaces are not so valued uh, in in, no, in 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 our mindset at the moment. And we've seen also during the pandemic 
how essential workers are poorly paid, while a lot of non-essential workers, we can live without their effort, their work, are, are very well protected and, and very well paid. I think we are at this stage that we need to yeah, reevaluate what is what value we give to different activities in society. Right. Uh, so from this conversation, like as a closing reflection, I would like to explore with you. In this conversation, I think we have um, discussed uh, how things are shifting so strongly to some extent. And so, so especially how uh, existing categories, let's say from the industrial uh, age, don't really fit anymore to the work uh, landscape and are increasingly going to be unfit to describe what the future of work uh, looks like. So maybe if you can spend a couple of words in, uh, you know, if you are really seeing this paradigm shift, if you are see, really seeing what comes after this nexus that we seem to be living, and if yes, what are the new patterns, the new ideas, the new platforms, the new things that um, uh, manifest this uh, shift uh, more more than anything else in your from your point of view? What are the things that maybe are worth mentioning to say, you know, this is the future of work, it is happening already, starting to happen already? I'll go back to the collectives because I think it's a topic that, that we all we all like. Right. But I, I would say, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to have a to explore to have a list for example, in, in France, and, and Leticia, I'm, I'm sure you will know, you have this group of developers called Happy Dep, Happy Developers, for example, or the people who are in Bordeaux, what's the name of the Cosme Collective, for example, they are in the advertising industry. In Spain, for example, there is My Way Spain, it's people who used to work in the advertising industry and they are fed up with the big brands and the big agencies, and they offer themselves as a, as a bunch of freelancers to the industry in their own terms. So I'm really interested on this level of 20, 30, 100 people uh, organization, or there is one in UK, I'm, I'm pretty sure you also, Leticia, also know Oxby, H-O-X-B-I collective. So for me, this, and, and, they, and they are, sometimes they look like a platform, but they do not go for the matchmaking, automated matchmaking process. They are more like, okay, we are bundling together to access the market in an organized form which is something like the guilds did. So, I don't know, for me, the, the, the evolution might be in this direction. Yeah, interesting. And we mentioned earlier the question of training and transitions. And I think there is a lot happening in that sphere of new collective institutions, for example, schools, training solutions, training ed tech solutions, for not for children, but for everyone of every age. And, and that field, I think it's a revolution that we're going through and we're beginning to realize that, you know, the old three-stage life with, you know, first training, then working, then retirement, that that's really over and that we're entering a world of work where there are multiple stages and multiple transitions and that if we have to go through these transitions on our own it's too hard but if we have collectives groups and schools and movements that can help then we we can make them easier right uh so it seems like uh it's really an open-ended uh question so it's really if, we, if after this conversation i feel even more that uh the future of work is uh, something that we still need to understand properly we frame it uh, in an age of uh to some extent uh, a little bit of institutional failure with institutions that are uh, clearly failing to capture you now this shift and at the moment not adding much value you know to this transition which is the most striking uh, aspect you know in this conversation we are having around the future of work there's a lot of markets there is a lot of technology uh, there's a lot of uh, entrepreneurship but uh, that's not, not much uh, not much public not much an institution in the conversation yet and and I think this is a, a massive question mark you know on the future of work how are we going to rebuild our institutional agreements around work and 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 uh, in in you know in a rapidly changing uh, landscape so so this is my maybe my 
main point you know that i i uh, get back from this uh, conversation so do you, do you want to add anything more before before we close uh, and uh, for sure i would like to ask you to just highlight uh, where our listeners can catch up most efficiently with your latest uh, research yeah I'm, I'm i'm i think like most of us i'm very active on on twitter so i would recommend to just uh, keep an eye on albert canick this is where i'm i'm active uh, mostly and sharing what i'm what i'm learning just a, a quick uh, i would say um, comment because now during christmas i've been playing a little bit uh, with uh, with virtual reality uh, and it made me think about the future of education as uh, Leticia mentioned and also the future of work in this space in this digital space of the of the metaverse so not in the short term i think but in the mid long term some people will be working in digital in pure digital spaces that's something to to keep an eye on in the mid mid long term thank you and you also have your uh, your uh, book you know that just uh, I, I, i published a book late last year in spanish uh, el trabajo ya no es lo que era work is not work is no longer what it used to be you can find it on my personal website all the links and everything it's called albertcanigaral.com and it's available in, in several places. Thank you, thank you. Leticia? Um, they were the same as Albert. I'm also on, on Twitter. Um, my uh, Twitter handle is at V-I-T-O-L-A-E, V-I-T-O-L-A-E. Um, and I have a, a, a newsletter that is about the future of work with a feminist perspective, and it's on Substack. So one of those platforms that we mentioned and that I am using as a personal vehicle for my future transitions in a career that's more and more complex and multiple. So again, thanks very much. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm really looking forward to talk uh, again when uh, maybe our ideas uh, crystallize a bit more in the coming uh, months, uh, possibly or years. Thanks very much again. Thank you. Thank you. And to our listeners, catch up soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boundless Conversation podcast. We truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please share this episode on social media, review our show on any major distribution platform, and don't forget to subscribe for new episode releases. Stay tuned on www.platformdesigntoolkit.com for our latest news and updates. There, you can also find our free design tools, opportunities to learn how to use them, or connect directly with us to use our help in designing your platform and ecosystem strategies in these turbulent times. We also want to thank Walter Mobilia Leo Sound for the ad hoc music.